Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 7, Episode 11. Over the past couple of weeks, I've been covering the places and people defeated by the Israelites as they made their way through southern Canaan. Well-known places like Hebron and Jericho, along with lesser-known places like Deber and Guzer, and many places in between. In Chapter 10, Joshua commands the sun to stand still and it does. It's also here that we get a mention of the book of Jasher. This chapter is rich with history. I've covered all of these places as part of this chapter of the podcast or earlier, except Jerusalem. And there's something that tends to get missed in Joshua 10, and that's what's not in there, the defeat of Jerusalem. Joshua and the Israelites do defeat the king of Jerusalem, and presumably his army who were allied at the time with four other kings from Canaan. But, if you strictly read the narrative, the Israelites never went to Jerusalem. This will play out centuries later with David. And, like I've mentioned a couple of times, I'm saving the history of that city for then. Just be patient. Having wrapped up every place in chapter 10, I'm moving on to 11, which is where I'll begin this episode. And with that very long introduction, let's get started. Chapter 11 begins in a manner similar to 10. The kings of northern Canaan hear of the advancing Israelites and unite, this time with more allied kingdoms than were found in chapter 10. From the text, and with my usual paraphrasing, When the king of Hazor heard of the Israelites' victories in southern Canaan, he sent messages to the kings of Madden, Shimron, Akeship, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country. He also sent to the kings in the Yeraba south of Chinnereth, in the lowland, and in Napador, which was in the west. But those weren't the only kings. Messages were sent to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites in the hill country in the Hivites under Hermon, in the land of Mizpah. This is a long list, and because of places mentioned like the kings who were in the northern hill country, there is really no way to keep track, at least at this point in the narrative. Do remember that in Joshua 12, there is a more detailed accounting of the people and kings defeated by the Israelites, so their names may be revealed then. One generally safe assumption is that those that weren't listed by name either didn't show up, or more likely were from rather small places. Many, maybe all of these kings from northern Canaan, along with their armies, came out to the battlefield, where we're told they showed up with all their troops, a great army, in numbers like the sand on the seashore, with a great many horses and chariots. All of these kings joined their forces, and camped together at the waters of Merom to fight with Israel. This first paragraph of the chapter gives me many places to cover, beginning with Hazor. In Joshua, its king is listed as Jabin. Hazor itself is on a tell, north of the Sea of Galilee, meaning quite a distance from where the Israelites were encamped at Gilgal. How far? Well, as the crow flies so not taking into account the terrain. 
it's at least 75 miles, 120 kilometers, and this was either by hoof or foot, several days' march for an army. In the period when the Israelites were arriving back on the scene, so the Middle to Late Bronze Age for the region, Hazor was the largest fortified city in the Upper Canaanite region and was so large that it was even among the most powerful in the entire Fertile Crescent. Obviously, this should have meant it had a formidable military, and when allied with other regional powers, it should have presented a great obstacle for the upstart Israelites. Not to be a spoiler, but the text is over 3,000 years old, and these united kings of northern Canaan would be defeated by the Israelites. At that time, Joshua tells us that Hazor was the head of all the kingdoms listed earlier. This was a significant victory. The Israelites hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots. But they weren't done. They ended up killing everyone in the city, including the king. They burned it to the ground. Presumably, there was nothing and no one left. But that wasn't the city's last mention in the Old Testament. In Judges 4, Hazor is mentioned again, and again with the king Jobin. He would come to rule some 160 years after Joshua's death, and for the next 20 years reigned over the Israelites in his territory. The people were paralyzed with fear. Among his many armaments, we're told he had 900 chariots of iron. There's a clue they were now in the Iron Age. He continued to rule over them until the prophetess and judge, Deborah, summoned Barak, and told him to lead the troops in a battle. They aroused the national spirit and gathered together 10,000 men and won a great indecisive victory over Jabin. This was the first significant victory Israel had won since the days of Joshua. According to Judges 5, for the next 40 years, they never needed to fight another battle with the Canaanites. Of course, this makes you wonder how after the first Jobin of Hazor was defeated, then the Israelites in that region came under the control of Hazor again. Samuel, in his farewell address, fills in the blanks. He reminded the people that the Israelites, in this case, probably the tribe of Naphtali, as they were allotted the area around Hazor, after capturing the city, they forgot the Lord their God and he sold them into the hands of Sisera, commander of the army of Jobin of Hazor. Samuel also mentions that the Israelites were, in his words, sold into the hands of the Philistines and the king of Moab. Israelites cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord. They served the Canaanite deities and were now seeking rescue from their oppressors. This is when Deborah and Barak came on the scene and delivered them. In essence, what happened in the years after Joshua, the people did just as Moses and Joshua had foretold, and they cried out, just as the two had predicted too. Later, King Solomon would rebuild a wall around Hazor. Then it would be captured by the Neo-Assyrian king Tiglath-Pileser. As with most places in the region, when the Babylonians led by King Nebuchadnezzar invaded, it was captured, 
Jeremiah provided a great deal of detail about this in the book bearing his name. He cursed Hazor, saying, among other things, Flee, wander far away, hide in deep places, O inhabitants of Hazor. Their camels shall become booty, their herds of cattle a spoil. Hazor shall become a lair of jackals, an everlasting waste. No one shall live there, nor shall anyone settle in it. And, since he had foretold, and it was recorded, this certainly became the fate of the city. Those mentions, along with a smattering of geographic references, sum up the biblical history of this place, which gets me to the outside record. Unlike many of the cities I covered recently, the archaeological record seems to indicate that Hazor wasn't initially settled until the early to mid-3rd millennium B.C. This would place it in the early Bronze Age, with the earliest estimated date being in the 28th century B.C. It appears to have started out, as you would have expected, relatively small, with only a few houses from the era being found among the ruins. Despite being small, about 100 years later, some sort of monumental structure was erected in the city, and by most accounts, it was rather large. Unfortunately, though, it isn't well preserved. Despite this, it does provide some insight into the city and region. It is one of the earliest specimens of basalt slabs used as foundations and walls in the region. The only other structure that appears to be older is a temple at Tel Megiddo, and the distance between these locations is over 30 miles, 50 kilometers. As for Tel Megiddo, it's the place the Greeks called Armageddon. As the Bronze Age progressed, in general, the population, at least some of it, began moving from the rural agricultural areas to cities. In the region, these included Dan, Abel-Beth-Ma, and Hazer. In two of these, the accumulated wealth was enough to afford the local king a palace. These palaces are part of the uncovered ruins. And something else has been uncovered. Pottery. That itself isn't new to the podcast, but the next bit is... Most of the pottery found in the city is made from a certain type of locally sourced clay. Some of these vessels have been found in other cities in the region. The new part is that there was a different type of pottery found in Hazer dating to this period, so different that it was made from a completely different local clay. What does this indicate? The prevailing theory is that there were at least two different pottery manufacturers in the city. Another find in the ruins were some 15 different cylinder seals. This is by far the largest trove of such artifacts found in the greater region, likely representing the importance of Hazer compared to the other cities in the area. At this time, it's thought the city was around 200 acres, just under a square kilometer in size. The upper part of the city was about 12% of the total and was built upon a raised mound, sitting about 130 feet, 40 meters above the lower city. Then towards the end of the 3rd millennium BC, so around 2200 BC, the region went through an urban decline, 
This was about the same time Abraham was living in the area. In this region, most cities were either completely or partially abandoned, with archaeologists uncovering primarily small agricultural villages and tombs. But this trend didn't hold for Hazer. Why there was a decline and why Hazer was spared remains a mystery. Uncovered buildings from the period include several structures and the largest find of pottery in the region. But pottery wasn't the only thing found there. There were many copper ingots. As the 3rd millennium BC wound down, Hazor was likely the wealthiest city in what would become northern Canaan, with both pottery production and metal smithing. After a few hundred years, and for reasons unknown, the region once again had flourishing urban centers. A flourishing city would be a target for stronger regional empires. At some point in the early 18th century BC, Hazor would become a vassal for the Syrian Empire, which was led at the time by Ishiadu of Katna. Also from about this period, Hazor is mentioned on fragmentary Egyptian texts. But the clay records are so fragmented that the context of the communication has yet to be deciphered. That's not the only place in the ancient record from the era that the city is mentioned. There's also the Mari Archive, which is about 25,000 different clay tablets uncovered in Mari, in what is today southeastern Syria. The tablets were written in the Akkadian language. They described the kingdom, its customs, and the names of the people who lived in the region at the time. Over 3,000 of these tablets are letters, with the balance being administrative, economic, and judicial text. Nearly all of the tablets uncovered date to the last 50 years of Mari's independence, which was between about 1800 and 1750 BC. What's remarkable is that Mari is over 300 miles, nearly 500 kilometers from Hazer. To have records of the city from that period in as desperate of places such as ancient Egypt and Assyria attest to the importance of the city. Why they had these ties to these far-flung places was likely related to trade, and in this case, the importation of the tin necessary for the bronze industry. Also dating to the same period as the Mari tablets, a clay tablet was uncovered in Hazer itself. This piece is inscribed with laws similar to the Code of Hammurabi, which also dates to the period. The Hazer document includes laws pertaining to body parts and damages, written in a similar style to Exodus 21, which reads, Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand. The tablet is written in Akkadian cuneiform, which was the diplomatic language of the place and period. Then something happened. Within a couple hundred years, the entire region of Canaan was a vassal state of Egypt. This was during the Egyptian Second Intermediate Period and into the beginning of the New Kingdom. This was also about when Jacob and family migrated to Egypt. Like has been seen throughout the region, especially in the southern part of Canaan I've covered in the past couple of episodes, Hazer was mentioned in the Egyptian Armana letters. And just like the other regional rulers did, the governor Hazer pledged his loyalty to the Egyptian pharaoh. Then something different. 
On one tablet, the king of a place named Hashura switched his loyalty to the invading Habiru. The reason it merits a mention is that Hashura may be the same place as Hazer. Another letter is between the king of Hazer and either Pharaoh Amenhotep III or his son Akhenaten. Their combined rule was between about 1390 and 1334 BC, placing it just before, perhaps less than a hundred years before, the generally agreed upon date for the Exodus. Egyptian control of the city would last in Hazer as long as it did in the rest of Canaan, with the Egyptians leaving the region sometime around 1200 BC. This was about the same time as the Exodus which was followed by the 40 years of wandering. What this means is that at the time between the Egyptians losing control over the region and the Israelites gaining control, this period was rather short. Circling back to the biblical accounts of the two kings named Jabin, both from Hazer, there's something I need to cover, and this didn't fit neatly with what's in Joshua and Judges, so, I saved it for this point in the episode. According to the book of Joshua, Hazer was where Jabin ruled from. He was a powerful Canaanite king who led the northern Canaanite confederation against Joshua and the Israelites. Of course, he and his confederation were defeated, with Hazer being burned to the ground. Then, in Judges, a different king Jabin of Hazer had an army commander who led Canaanite forces against the Israelites led by Barak, with the Israelites coming out on top. So far, very redundant. Why I'm covering this now is what some textual scholars propose, and that's that the prose found in the account of Barak is different from the poetic account in the Song of Deborah. This song is found in Judges 5 and is what Deborah and Barak sang after the victory. The scholars think that the differences can lead to a different conclusion, that the defeat of the Canaanite commander Sisera by the Israelite commander Barak was a different event than the defeat of King Jabin of Hazer. And the defeat of the king of Hazer only occurred once, but was recorded in both Joshua and Judges. Or to state it another way, the Israelites did certainly defeat Hazer and Joshua, and the account in Judges is about a different battle, still between the Israelites and the Canaanites, just not involving King Jabin. Don't worry, there won't be a quiz, and I'll let you decide for yourself. Now for something far more interesting. As archaeologists have dug into the ruins, like they do, they've uncovered the signs of a catastrophic fire, dating to about 1200 B.C., this was about the same time, give or take, that the Israelites arrived in Canaan. Cuneiform tablets from that era are found in the ruins of Hazer, and they refer to a monarch named Ibni Adi. Ibni is considered close enough to the name Jabin that they may be two names referring to the same ruler. The ruins also indicate that the pre-fire city was extremely prosperous as evidenced by large temples and lavish palaces. Like I mentioned before, the city had a built-up hill on top of which sat an acropolis, along with a well-developed lower city. In the ruins of the palace, specifically in its storerooms, and dating to the time of the fire, 
was pottery containing foodstuffs that were burned up. There are some researchers that believe the fire was at the hand, or maybe the sword tip of the Israelites. Of course, others do what others do, and in this example, they propose that the destruction was either caused by the newly arrived Sea Peoples or warring internal factions leading to a civil war. Do note, though, that there really isn't a great deal of evidence pointing to either of these, especially the latter. Whichever it was, the city was destroyed, which gets me to the period the Israelites would control it, and the region in general. After this destruction, and as revealed in the archaeological record, the city was rebuilt, though not to its original splendor. It would remain small for the time, and all the while within the territorial limits of the tribe of Naphtali. The fortunes of the town would change when King Solomon ruled over the united Israel. In this period, Hazer, along with Megiddo and Guzer, would all have substantial fortifications built. It appears that the cities also expanded in the period. This was in the time immediately after the Egyptian pharaoh burned at Guzer and gave it to Solomon as a dowry for his daughter, Solomon's latest wife in a story I covered last week and found in 1 Kings 9. So, what did this Solomon-led expansion look like? The archaeological finds show a very unique six-chambered gate, along with more typical buildings, probably of a governmental administrative sort. The ruins are similar to ones found in Megiddo and Guzer in the same period. Correlating with the text of Kings, which would mean they were part of Solomon's construction activity, though there are a minority of archaeologists who date the ruins to about 100 years later, when one of the Omri rulers of Israel were in charge. This name is certainly less familiar, and includes kings such as Ahab and Jehoram. I'll have much more on them at some point in the future. As for those of this later opinion, they rely on certain features, like deep-cut rock pits. Pits so deep that rock-cut tunnels lead to a well, which itself reached down to the water table. There were also water supply systems. In the western part of Hazer was a moderately-sized citadel for the era. It was about 80 by 70 feet, 25 by 21 meters, and had walls that were over 6 feet, 2 meters thick. To be clear, that these ruins exist is not a matter of debate, just when they were built. Also note, the dating of the gate in governmental buildings is not debated, and wholly agrees to the dating to Solomon in aligning with the text in Kings. It's just the date of the other features that's debated. Later, meaning towards the end of the 9th century BC, when King Jehu ruled over northern Israel, Hazer would fall to the Aramines, specifically those from Aram, Damascus. The city may have been damaged in the battles leading up to its fall, as it appears it was rebuilt following its conquest. Not long after this, the Neo-Assyrians would conquer the Aramines. But in the midst of this, something unexpected happened. Hazer seemed to return to the control of the northern Israelites, how this came to be is a bit of a mystery, though. What's less of a mystery is that much of Israel were vassals to the new Assyrians, as Assyrian records show that King Jehoash, 
the king of northern Israel, pay tribute. The general thinking, though records don't indicate, is that Jehoash was permitted to administer Hazor. After this period, northern Israel, which included Hazor, experienced a period of economic expansion and the prosperity that went along with it. There is a small minority of researchers who attribute the rock-cut water-channeling ruins to this era. Around 732 BC, while the region, and therefore Hazor, was still controlled by the Neo-Assyrians, northern Israel rebelled, and apparently was victorious, at least in the beginning, until the forces of the Neo-Assyrian ruler Tiglath-Pileser III arrived. All of this seemed to happen rather suddenly, as uncovered artifacts and ruins seemed to indicate the people of Hazor attempted to quickly build up their defenses, all to no avail. In 732 BC, Hazor was captured, well, really recaptured, and the Assyrian king wasn't going to let this lapse in judgment slide. He had the population deported, and the city was burned to ash, apparently, this time, for good, never to be occupied again which provides me with a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll pick up in the book of Joshua. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.